Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. What I'm going to do here today is try to tell something of a story. And the story is largely a feature of um, the way that I see how technology interacts with uh, emergent warfare. But I think that you could probably link many things into what I'm going to say about technology today. And in fact, much of what I use today in talking about technology actually extends far beyond warfare. And I think that hopefully you'll be able to take quite a bit away from, from this. Now, in doing so, in order to make this a, a coherent narrative, in order to, to get many of these dots to connect, uh, what I decided to do was to put pen to paper, really, and, and to write it. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to um, go through what I've written, uh, and then I'm also going to punctuate it, hopefully, with an opportunity to, to, to uh, uh, elicit, to illustrate, to exemplify, and to hopefully to, to educate. So, forever vigilant, technology and the rise of boundless warfare. Deputy Vice Chancellor, Dean, ladies and gentlemen, I'm honored to be here today to tell you a story about one of the major social and political phenomenon that we know war. It is in our news, our conversations, our view of politics, our gut reactions, in our conversations, our view of politics, I'm sorry, our, 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 our views of film, television, literature. It, it's really all around us. We can understand war as a pejorative, a pejorative term, as a stain on humanity, as an evil, as, an ultimate, as ultimate human chaos. We can also understand war as human expression, togetherness, order, and exacting. War as a feature of our historical, our contemporary, our future societies holds us by our hearts, and it also holds us by our minds. As Chris Hedges wrote in his book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, he tells us how it's fundamentally important to our societies and the way that we think about each other perhaps for good and for bad, as we definitely see today uh, all around the world. My road to war, or rather to war studies, is not one of blood, lust, patriotism, military background, or a family history. I, I don't really have any of these. It is one of an intellectual entrepreneur. <coughs> as Haruki Murakami, Japanese uh, author, says in his book, Dance, 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 we are all shoveling snow of one kind or another. I shovel, hopefully, intellectual snow. This intellectual curiosity has led me from post-Soviet affairs, as was illustrated, minority rights, international organizations, foreign policy analysis, race and ethnicity, even to graffiti and disruptive art. Yet all of these areas of study, graciously supported by many funders like the British Academy, Liverium Trust, ESRC, HRC, the EPSRC, and Ministry of Defense, State Department, U.S. State Department, have always revolved around, to me, conflict and insecurity. I will never forget that while doing my Ph.D. looking for signs of democratization and ethnic conflict, I was disappointed, you know, fortunate for others, but I was disappointed to see so much ethnic diversity and ethnic cooperation, because that's not a good Ph.D., is it? And in fact, of course it is. But so little conflict indeed. Good for them, a pity for me then, and of course good for me now, as I go back to those regions often. René Descartes, great philosopher, argued in his work on dualism that there was a distinction between the mental and the material. This distinction sticks with me, and this is where 
we'll be looking at today or tonight. This link between the mental and the material is particularly important in the way that we understand how society works in terms of its causation, its free will. It's, it's where we sit in terms of the mental, the decision-making, and the material, the decision-less, the, the tools. Four years ago, I began on a journey. I began to look at the changing nature of how technology impacted politics in general. More specifically, I was interested in how changes in technology and science were opening up changing the rules and even reasserting what we know of as, to, as possible, preventable, and even desirable. I've been teaching international security for over 10 years, and in 2009 I was asked to teach a European security course by then the editor-in-chief of the journal Ed- European Security that someone else had been teaching, and I noticed there was no information on the militaries of which we were talking about. There was much on geopolitics, on the causes of war, on the rise and fall of ethno-nationalist violence, but nothing on those at the coalface of war itself, our militaries. So I decided to add a lecture on contemporary European militaries, only to be confronted with a, really, a, a paucity of literature on the contemporary European military. It was in this search for literature that I found Chris Dandoker's work on the risk and complexity in the emerging global system, entitled New Times for the Military, some sociological remarks on the changing role and structure of the armed forces of the advanced societies. Yeah, cumbersome, but actually a very interesting article. A military sociologist, Dan Becker, at King's College London, he argued that the British military and those who serve in it are facing a changing world, which he refers to as the shift leading to risk. Ted Edmonds at the University of Bristol wrote in a similar way in 2006, What Are Armed Forces For? The Changing Nature of Military Roles in Europe. Another sociologist at the University of Exeter, Anthony Keane, was also important in illustrating the comparative context of his change in 2011, which is called The Transformation of Europe's Armed Forces from the Rhine to Afghanistan. It is this shift leading to risk that I'm particularly interested here today. I argue here today that the shift leading to risk is technology and the rise of boundless warfare. What do we mean by technology? Good question. Technology here is understood as written large, what we understand as techno-science. Technology is an enabler. It enables geolocation, keeping boots off the ground, as we hear so much about today, tapping into you and your and, and my communications, as we also hear about big data, it also allows for greater lethality, more pursuit in the accumulation and dispersal, accumulation and dispersal of power. Technology is satellites, networks, processors, personal computers, and robots. But it also is the result to material, biological, and chemical sciences. Perhaps even more contentious is the combat soldier as a technology itself, of which Anthony King in his most recent book, The Combat Soldier, has talked about. The concept of the soldier, of the warrior, and even what gender theorists would point out as having been constructed as what a man is, in many ways, it can be referred to as a technology. Here I want to talk about technology in terms of space, time, and force, which I think technology has a significant impact on. Space we can understand by distance and dispersal, 
concentration. We can, also, we can think about time in terms of the period between two points, a time one, a time two. And we can think about force as mass and acceleration, which is not a surprise for you that know um, the, um, the theory or the equation for mass or force. It allows us to talk about how technology is interacting with war, both contemporary war and what we call emerging war. We're going to come back to this after we discuss what we think of as bounded and unbounded war. Notice in the title of the event, I did not use the term unbounded war. I use boundless war because, well, I make a distinction. I make a distinct point of whether bounded war can become unbounded or whether boundless warfare is something else entirely. Not what we know as bounded warfare changed, that is, is what we understand today is being bounded, and I'm going to get into more detail about what bounded is, but instead an emerging form of warfare that's different than anything that we've experienced before. We can understand technology as applied, as used, as passive. I have agency. You have agency. Yeah, you can do something. You can pick up the tools and use them. The tools can't pick up you and use you. And I have to say, that's the way that I'm going to come at technology. What I'm not trying to say here today is that eventually, through artificial intelligence and maybe uh, bioengineering, that eventually we will be also used by, by, by tools or by technology. Uh, I'm talking about something quite differently. We can think about this in terms of what many scholars are looking at, the impact of technology on defense, such as UAVs, air power, processing speeds, big data, network-enabled forces, command and control. Let me say here why my colleague and researcher, Manbrata Guha, who unfortunately can't be here today, comes in. Manav's work and that of his longtime mentor, Mick Dillon, at the University of Lancaster, suggests that to understand technology simply as applied is misleading. Rather, they understand technology differently. And we can understand technology as a system, a way of doing things. Another way to say it is that technologies provide governmentalities, ways of understanding, of knowing, of seeing, of governing, of realizing. The focus on this system is highlighted in Manov's book, Reimagining War in the 21st Century. And he talks about the distinction between the Cartesian love for the system and Newtonian value of the system. And it's the system that we're going to come back to time and time again. For those that have followed me until this point, and I hope there's many of you, might see this as technological determinism. Right? Technology determines what we do. Yeah, which is what Bill, I think, has accused me of previously already. Allow me to illustrate to you a case that highlights difficulties in talking about a one-way relationship of technology to agency or agency to technology. In Ruth Miller's book, Snarl, a fantastic book, I highly recommend it, Snarl, and I don't know Ruth, so... <laughs> Uh, is snarled in defense of stalled traffic and faulty networks. She uses an interesting historical example to illustrate the power of technology once applied. The example is interesting because it shows us an early version of what one would refer to as dual use, a category today that suggests a technology that has both civil and martial 
properties or applications. But in the 18th century, the city of Paris experienced this dual-use phenomenon. Covered in paving stones, as you see here today, covered in paving stones to cover what would ordinarily be, as we'd imagine, dirty, muddy city streets. Paris was not the first to do this by any means. But in this case, the martial qualities of the paving stones fundamentally changed the system in which prior political power relations had once stood. She she shares a quote from the French civil servant at the time, 1848. Paving stones offer the most suitable material for the construction of barricades in the moments of civil war. It was, in, it was this that, in June 1848, the streets of Paris were covered in a few hours with a series of citadels which cannonballs could hardly demolish. Much bloodshed would have been spared on both sides if such materials had not existed so close to hand. The government on the, of the French Republic, deeply impressed with the magnitude of this danger, called the serious attention of the engineers of the Paris roads to the necessity of replacing the ancient system of stone paving by some other which would not offer materials for the construction of barricades. Yeah. Now, Miller argues that roads as a network technology, we lay them and we connect them in order to drive or walk upon them, must be understood to play what she refers to as a constitutional role. They fundamentally change the habits of what we do as societies. She states, our roads are at war regardless of the needs and desires of activities of, of, the, of human citizen subjects. Our, war, our roads are constantly at war. Right? We can think about how the transformation of stone paving into barricades and weapons turns roads, regardless of the people onto them, into physical environments of military activity. Might we even go further to say that one could write a history of wars as non-human battle? Is the history of the Second World War in the tank, from the tank's perspective, or the First World War from the trenches' perspective? If we could do that, where does political agency fit in? Where, where, where do we fit into that? Well, allow me to bring this back to the study of bounded and boundless warfare, which you're still trying to figure out. I guess. What do we mean by bounded warfare? These are two bookends, two exotic bookends, but I really like the chess pieces at the top. Um, We can think about it through two lenses. The first is the political or the democratic lens. The relationship between war and states or nations has been long studied, and this conversation goes like the chicken and the egg. Which came first? Do states make wars or do wars make states? The wars of France, revolutionary, Napoleonic, or otherwise could argue, uh, one could argue, have made made France what we know of it today. These wars fit as between two bookends. We understand when they started, when they stopped. They are bounded by their beginnings and their ends, by their epics, by their eras, by political narratives that surround them. We understand the wars against Napoleonic France or Nazi Germany, they give us meaning, right? They give us meaning as we fit into their historiographies in one way or another. The war against terrorism, well, the war against drugs, 
Do they give us the same amount of meaning? No. They don't mean, I mean, I suspect that's probably shared. My assumption is, is that they, they don't because they're not seen as existential. Terrorism nor drugs will wipe us off the face of the earth. Exterminate us, starve us. That is not to say that policies to protect us from terrorism and drugs are not right, proper, even necessary. But they are not wars because they do not give us meaning. That is not to say that they don't have strategies. We don't see deployments. Actors don't have tactics. And even, it's not that we don't see casualties or victims. What is meant by boundless warfare is it needs an enemy. Warfare has a start and an end. Warfare has a discernible action or a discernible reaction. Warfare has ideology. These are four boundaries of warfare that I argue are becoming eclipsed by technology. In 1984, George Orwell, as many of us will know anyway, imagined war bounded by enemy, bounded by, uh, binded by, by enemies, but boundless by time. Oceania was always at war with either Eurasia or East Asia. The enemy changed. The action didn't. Oceania was always at war. If we hold Chris Hedges' quote that war is a force that gives us meaning, then we can see why the government of Oceania and presumably Eurasia and East Asia, who were doing the same thing, would have been used as a means of control. That's what war was, a means of control. Though clearly war for the protagonist Winston Smith had lost meaning. It had lost meaning because of its boundlessness in terms of time. And herein lies an allegory for how we might imagine the democratic response to boundless war, and maybe even the democratic response to the war on drugs, the war on terror, finding the enemy. So what do we know? What what if we don't know who's attacking us? What if we don't know our enemies? What if we can't spot them? What if we don't have an end? It's an ongoing war. What if we don't know how we're even fighting or how they're attacking us? Would war still give us meaning? Let us think of the, about this relation uh, the, or this relationship and how we think about war itself as an extension of politics. Karl von Clausewitz, Prussian uh, general come philosopher in the 19th century, states that war is a continuation of politics. Others, including Christopher Coker at the LSE, talks about war as a function of human nature. And we can refer to both of these approaches in thinking about the political human. Warfare as a human function. A social function. Gives us meaning, binds us together, etc. Within this political dynamic, we can think of three determinants or factors in war as they've been discussed. They are information, citizenship, citizenship, and decision-making. For Clausewitz, the political function existed within what he refers to as the Trinity. And for Andreas Herberg-Roth, in his book Clausewitz's Puzzle, The Political Theory of War, he states the Trinity can be seen in particular in Clausewitz's statement that war, and I'll come back to this, so I'll, re- I'll, I'll make an emphasis here, War must remain subject to the action of superior intelligence and has a political purpose. 
And herein lies a problem for us. And it has a problem or presents a problem for our understanding of the paving stones in 19th century Paris. What role does technology have in political purpose? Surely a rioter has to choose to pick up the rock or to build the citadel with it or to throw it. The political purpose is the factor, the driver that leads the rioter to make the the choice to throw the rock or to build the citadel, to be an agent to violence. This conception of violence or warfare, warfare in our case requires the political human. But let us assume that our conception of the political human, or at least the agency that he poses, is limited. In this conception of the political human, we only have technical objects. Not, te- not technical agents. And the distinction between objects and agents, I hope, is clear for everyone in the audience. The technical agents of war, like roads, like IT networks, like UAVs or drones, are themselves enablers. They are, perhaps one would say, agents. Information as it is comes into being when it is processed. Its relationship to bounded warfare, in fact, political purpose, requires it. Requires that information is militarized, is used in this way. Bounded warfare communicates. Citizenship as it is determines the political, the political purpose. It sustains this political purpose. We know whom we are and we know who they are. Decision-making, as it is, defines the purpose. Boundless warfare challenges a political theory of warfare, a, a, a political theory of warfare, that war is an extension of politics. And this is as Clausewitz's ideas have been referred to by Herbert Roth as a political theory of warfare. So perhaps a technological theory of warfare aids our understanding of how warfare is shaped by system factors. Now, what we're saying here is, is that these system factors, or this technology, is particularly important. What we're not trying to say is that the political purpose is not important. But the interaction between these two is where we continue to come back. What if we think of warfare not as political behavior, but as technological behavior? And where does this leave the human? Could we transpose the political human with the technological human? What do we mean by this? I hope you're asking yourself, right? (laughs) We don't mean cyborgs or robots, but something else entirely. Let us come back to Ruth Miller. She charts how English metaphors began to change from the 19th to the 20th century. This transfer, she indicates that where before we had biological metaphors for human behavior, increasingly in the 20th century, our language was being affected by what was information theory. The organism, human in our case, and so in, in, this, in the city, in the community, in the networks that we've created, was no longer being understood as a single point, a single agent, as it had been before, but instead was being understood as a message, as communication. In other words, human value becomes increasingly roped into the system of communication itself. Now, others have talked about this in terms of the impact that cybernetics had on a wide range of discourses. If anything, information theory allowed us to think about how the system works together. For instance, how roads, drivers, cars, traffic, cities, 
and so on could be understood as data mapped and communicated. Miller argues that the cyberneticists were not taking the, they're not taking, they're not dehumanizing humans. In fact, humans were still very important. In the theory, through a subjective humanist perspective, was constantly used. Humans were still very much at the center of the system. The system matters because humans mattered. Coming back to um, Newton. Miller writes, more damaging for our purposes, these are her words, they were situating everything else within a system of human communicative, or a framework, a communicative framework. What for her, she saw, was they were formulating it within a political framework. These humans and their systems were a political framework. And in doing so, they were being transformed, or they were transforming the machine into a human, if a digitized human, and the physical network into a communications network. They were obliterating the machine, both actually and rhetorically, just as the machine was taking on a greater and greater role in the city, on the road, and on the battlefield. Now, she starts this book actually not with drones or not with cyber warfare, but she starts with the great, uh, perhaps even the greatest, um, traffic jam or tailback in Chinese history, perhaps in world history, which lasted for two weeks, uh, which was uh, absolutely amazing. Imagine perhaps one of the most powerful governments that has ever existed on this earth could not do anything about a traffic jam that lasted for two weeks. What does that tell us about the technologies that were meant to give us mobility but in fact gave us static, just left us there. She goes on talking about the humanized network. When information and communication exit the picture, it becomes clear that both historic and contemporary military machines simply do not lend themselves to a user tool analytical framework. In fact, technology has a quality that is different. Take roads. We might ask the question how roads are militarized by populations. Surely we need the populations. But we can also ask the question, we can also ask the question, how do roads militarize populations? In the case of the paving stones on Parisian streets in 1848, they became barricades and weapons, regardless of the people on them. They were physical environments of political, or sorry, of military activity. And surely they engage in human agency, without a doubt. But you could easily say, see it the other way around, that the human agency is determined by technological possibilities. This is what Miller refers to as largely under-theorized type of non-human battle. And she thinks of it very much along these lines. That in a sense, once we establish these new Cartesian lines, we are bound by them. The ability to go off of them, as many of us stuck on trains between two points, feel in our guts at the time, after we've been sitting there for 20 minutes and they haven't told us what's wrong yet. We understand exactly what that means. This allows us to talk about the growth in automatic, non-human modes of warfare, the very same modes of warfare that seem so shockingly irrelevant to human ethical norms. 
And that's indeed what we think about in terms of UAVs or drones. So, what do we mean by technology? Well, let us stop and talk about technology. And that's hopefully what you came here today to listen to me talk about. In terms of what I refer to as tech mech and flex. The technological, the mechanical, and the flexing or the force that is applied by militaries. And let us think of it, what many have identified with Donald Rumsfeld, even though it didn't. Um, it predates Don Rumsfeld, and that is this, this tri, tri, or tri, triad or trinity of the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. Bear with me. We live in a world where networks continually take over our world. They are seen as being applicable to everything. Not just information, technology, networks, but road networks, as we've seen in, you know, in the case of Miller's work, as I've been telling you, but also community networks. Body networks, some you know, on measuring us, measuring you know, reporting us constantly to ourselves. Yeah. So even we are seen as systems. We know that these networks are becoming larger. They're becoming wider, more complex, and this complexity is key to our understanding of emergent warfare and to boundless warfare. The applied technologies that make networks possible are fiber optics, mobile batteries. Processor size, speed, low-orbit satellites, and fundamentally, us. We are the most important technology in that system, perhaps. We have become mechanized ourselves in the way that we seek to network our task. We tap in, we add on, we hack. These technologies allow for applied tools such as UAVs, drones, information, cyber warfare, body monitoring, being able to understand what the individual combat soldier is feeling, thinking, experiencing, which we understand as battle or visualization systems, or or, um, there's several names for them. These are the known knowns. We know that these technologies exist. We know how we fit into these systems. The known unknowns, we can relate to Moore's Law, Moore's law tells us that the number of transistors on a dense integrated circuit board will double every two years. And history has shown that to be largely the case. It's a very apt way of anticipating processor speed in the future. And having said this, even though we know that the processor speeds will increase in the future, we do not have an idea of what would follow, or what will follow, rather. Or at least most of us. Chris Coker has illustrated in his book, Warrior Geek, science fiction has been a rich source of how we might use technology in the future. Though I doubt we'll be using concentrated photon beams as swords in the future. It's for my sons, those are lightsabers to the rest of us. Processor speeds can allow greater artificial intelligence, whether whether they're like us or not. Yeah, this artificial intelligence and going back to Joanne's fantastic um, uh, 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 news night, was it? News night uh, uh, two weeks ago, perhaps. Yeah. The change in genetic materials, sciences, microengineering also open up a world of a bespoke, of a tailored, of a, hack, a hacked, sorry, I lost my age there, altered applications. Gene therapy is one thing. Gene warfare is another altogether. 
It feels as if we are on the birth of a new kind of molecular science or sciences that will allow us to interact with the physical world in a totally different way. Revolutions bring changes which are valueless for the revolution itself. But what about the unknown unknowns? And you would expect this to be a quite empty section here. We are lost to anticipate those technologies on whose science has yet to be discovered or engineered. We might know that techno-scientific changes have a tendency to support existing networks. So there's a path dependency. Rather than provide new ones altogether... At the same time, new technologies provide new problems that we did not know existed, or we don't know that exist now. These are questions and answers that really don't fit in our current reality, in our current system, our systems. But something that I find um, perhaps even more uh, thought-provoking, and and I do this for Daimun, is Zizek's uh, Unknown Knowns. And the unknown knowns, as the, the, um, one, perhaps one of our greatest uh, contemporary philosophers, the significance of technology, its role in society, and the way that technology can be used to enforce and project power brings to mind Zizek's unknown knowns. They are known, but this knowledge is guarded. It's invisible to the rest of us. They are known... And we know these things, and a good example would be something like lasers. We know that concentrated photon beams exist. We know that lasers can be applied to warfare. But what we don't know, because it's never reported, uh, is how they're being used in warfare. And perhaps, maybe for a good reason, maybe the Ministry of Defense has no interest in telling us. But that in itself is interested. It's guarded. It's invisible to the rest of us. The Chinese military has been working on what has been referred to as the assassin's mace, which goes back in Chinese history quite, quite a bit. And this is understood as a trump card to outwit or defeat superior forces, which is the way that it's been used in Chinese history historically, if that makes sense. It is an unknown known. Right? It's guarded. It's invisible. With over 4 million people in the United States with some level of classified access, we can see that the role that unknown knowns, we can see how important that is in society, or at least in America's society. And here I rely on Ruth Miller's conceptual, once again, uh, conceptual framework to define boundless warfare. We can understand boundless warfare interacting between three scales. And these scales are vitality, mobility, and liberty. Vitality refers to the living, yeah, but it also refers to the not living. Where does agency or responsibility come into play as software, as hardware, or even more importantly for us, wetware, as human and computer computation converges, perhaps? On one level, yes, but where does it go? Mobility refers to the moving or stationary. One enjoys space, the other defeats it as our two-week Chinese uh, tailback or, or traffic jam showed us. Miller writes about the role of the UAV or the drone in violating the, the established Cartesian lines, which we know as, as borders or boundaries, while at the same time prized for their immobility. They can sit, they can watch, and they can watch and sit to kill. Tornadoes, F-35Bs, which are our joint strike fighters, they can't do this. 
right? They go, they have to refuel, be back out an hour, two hours, maybe three hours tops. Stuxnet, as many of us know, was similar. It was unleashed, but stationary. It was just sitting there in this Iranian nuclear uh, facility. It wasn't sent, right? It wasn't sent through an Ethernet cable. It was there. It was waiting, waiting for someone to plug it into the reactor machine. The reactor machine was off-grid. It was not connected to the Internet in any way. Mobility allows us to understand the spatial dimensions as a whole. Liberty refers to how power is displayed, whether hierarchical or vertical. If technology is controlled, we can understand its use use by organized nation-states and their militaries. This is something like the world we live in now. We understand hierarchy. We can also think about the vertical display of power where individuals have the ability to have agency, to take responsibility themselves, which is a major problem for our arms control today. The prospect of linked, as we have seen, unlinked computers mean that the boundaries on a map become ever more uh, uh, less relevant. So what are the effects? Well, there are challenges that come with this. What role for states? Where states fit into the boundless, where do they fit into this boundless system that I'm describing here? They are bounded systems themselves. We must admit that bounded warfare is unlikely to disappear. We understand that we'll still be able to have enemies, that we'll still be able to understand the beginning and the end of wars. We will still understand the ideologies of the narratives that wrap around them. We have an interest in maintaining these systems, I would add, both the states and the wars. At the same time, technologies challenge whom has power, whom has agency, and fundamentally who has responsibility. How will societies be able to deal with this, these less defined wars? Wars that have no end or wars that have no enemy, wars that have no place. How does this interact with citizenship, with po- political support, with identities? Where does the purpose come from? Where does the meaning come in? What future for power and security or what we understand as arms control? As the potential for boundless warfare increases, what does this mean for for, 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 for this, in a sense, this, this, the glue that is holding perhaps the unrestricted use of something like WMD or something like that. Arms control relies on state control of weapons, by and large, or the use of force. They are the ones who control it. They are the ones that employ it. Would an arms control agreement on cyber make a difference to cyber attacks? I don't think it would. We are in an era of stalled arms control, very much seen in the way that the international system or diplomats are talking about new arms control. And I have argued before, and I'm arguing here, that we are at the end of an arms control era. The interest is missing because the disparity is great. But could it be that the ability is missing too in cyber, in biochem, in robotics? Doesn't lie, lie with states perhaps any longer. The traditional actors have changed. The kitchen scientists or technicians are becoming ever more influential. Finally, how does it shape the relationship between security and defense? And this is where my research perhaps currently is at the moment. 
Militaries complained that the convergence of security and defense makes their job more difficult because it thins out what they do well with issues that are shaped by other agencies or other departments, international development being an example, and things that they do less well altogether. Yet many have documented that security and defense are increasingly interlinked. Of course, the military experiences this on an everyday basis. Not only does one lead to another, like civil war leads to famine, but boundless warfare suggests that as power, agency, and responsibility changes, while space, time, and force changes, security and defense could really become one and the same. I would suggest to you that's a big problem for our militaries. But it poses a problem, as I suggest here, for all of us in terms of coming to terms with what technology means for society and how it influences the future of warfare bounded and boundless. My research is trying to look at these changes in two different ways. The first is a project funded by the ESRC, or Economic and Social Research Council, that looks at technology as factors in defense reform in relation to other factors such as combat experience, budgets, and alliances. We... Simon Smith and I, are looking at eight European militaries in terms of changes in assets, force structure, and deployments. The second project is funded by the ESRC and the Defense Science and Technology Lab that looks at biochemical security and asks the questions how to govern new challenges to such technologies or to such scientists as incapacitants, pharmaceuticals, neurology, and genetics. Together, these projects try to chart how the character and nature of war is changing, these projects are part of what, um, what has recently been uh, uh, set up or established as the new Center for War and Technology. As technological and social changes, as well as developments in strategic thought or martial thought changes, these changes, uh, they, they are driving forces that are perpetually transformed the problems states confront and the opportunities to resolve them. Fundamentally, they're changing. The Center for War and Technology seeks to respond to the need to promote an understanding of conflict at this nexus. With this, I'll leave it there. Thank you.